Howdy y'all, welcome to episode number 20 of Once Upon a Time in Texas. I am your host and producer, Michael Mitchell. For those of y'all that follow the podcast and listen to me, thank you for sitting on the back porch with me, um, you know, listening to me tell stories and talking about some of the interesting things that I've found. I have a lot of fun doing this, I learn a lot along the way, and, and I hope you guys do too. This week, uh, I'm at Boy Scout Summer Camp. Still, uh, we're going for two weeks. Obviously, I'm recording this beforehand, but uh, yeah, we're about to leave out, and I'm pretty pumped about it. Um, my wife just took off to Washington, D.C. so that she could go to uh, um, a science fair conference. She and a friend restarted the science fair here in our area in, uh, in Wichita Falls called the Red River Regional Science and Engineering Fair. And she got a phone call, I guess, from a group of people that are having a big science fair conference up in Washington, D.C. and said, hey, um, we'll pay for you to go if, if you want to go. And so she did. So anyway, um, so she's off this morning and uh, we leave out in a couple of days to go to camp and uh, she'll fly in and pack up stuff and head off our way just a, a day later than we do. So, whew, it's going to be a busy couple of weeks, but it'll sure be fun. I, I love going to scout camp, summer camp, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, since we're going to scout camp and you just never know what's going to happen, I figured uh, this week we'd take a look at disasters <laughs> that have happened here in the great state of Texas. Hopefully, uh, no disasters will happen while we're at camp. We're actually going to be in Oklahoma, but... Uh, yeah, anyway, some of these are uh, natural disasters. Others are man-made. Uh, either way, I thought they were kind of interesting and thought I'd share them with you. So before we jump into it, as always, I want to mention our sponsor, uh, which is me. Yep, I pay for and underwrite all this stuff with doing the podcast. Um, I do work for American Mortgage Company. I know there's a ton of people moving to and in Texas, and I know a lot of y'all do too. So... Let me help them out. I am an independent mortgage loan originator. Like I said, working with American Mortgage Company. Uh, if you don't know what an independent uh, mortgage loan originator is, uh, you know how sometimes you can go to a um, insurance place and they will look at a bunch of different companies for you and find the best interest to fit your needs. And <clears throat> anyway, they're completely independent and they can shop a bunch of people. Well, I pretty much do the same thing just with mortgages. So anyway, you know, give me a shot. We help people finance their dream homes right here in Texas. Uh, I'm aware that getting a mortgage just like insurance is not always fun or something you really want to do. But you know, most folks don't have the kind of money in the bank they need to just go drop it on a house. So, uh, you know, most people need to get a mortgage. So why not work with somebody who's at least a uh, a little entertaining and really works hard to make that process painful. Sorry, less painful. <laughs> you know, somebody like me. So if you know someone moving to or in Texas, send them over my way. Send them to themichaelmitchell.com. Let me help them out. And remember when you work with me, I sell dreams, not mortgages. So everybody go, oh, doesn't that sound so sweet? <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and jump into this a little bit. Um, these are in no particular order. Uh, some of these I was able to find a lot more information on than others. And so we're, we're just kind of 
we're going to muddle our way through it, I guess. So first one I came up on was Hurricane Harvey. Happened in uh, 2017. This was a devastating, huge Category 4 hurricane that uh, made landfall on Texas and Louisiana in August of 2017. Obviously, this wasn't that long ago, so I remember it. Um, it caused catastrophic flooding, um, which resulted in more than 100 deaths out of this deal. That's just crazy. Um, it is tied with 2005's Hurricane Katrina as the costliest tropical cyclone on record. It's just crazy. Um, they estimated about $125 billion, and that's $2017. So $125 billion in damages, primary, ju primarily just from like the rainfall and the, the flooding that it caused in the Houston metropolitan area and in, in the rest of, I guess, southwest Texas. So that's what made the storm the costliest natural disaster recorded in Texas at the time. So that's, that's huge. Cost a whole lot of money. It was the first major hurricane to make landfall in the United States since Wilma in 2005. So it ended a uh, record 12-year span in which no hurricanes made landfall <clears throat> at the in intensity of a major hurricane throughout the country. So that's a good thing, I guess. So in a four-day period, many of the areas um, down around Houston received more than 40 inches of rain. So the system, I, I remember this, <clears throat> the system kind of came up and then just parked right over Houston. And uh, then it started kind of meandering over eastern Texas and just absolutely dumped rain like nobody's business and just really, really created some unprecedented flooding. Um, one place, Nederland, Texas, reported 60.58 inches out of this Hurricane Harvey. So... That made this the wettest tropical cyclone on record in the United States. And uh, really the flooding just, it inundated hundreds of thousands of homes. It displaced more than 30,000 people. And this is what crazy, it, it, it caused 17,000 rescues. Like I remember seeing photos of people on the roofs and stuff like that. So it was crazy. So in preparation for this storm, though, FEMA did work with the Coast Guard, Customs and Border Protection, uh, Immigration and Custom Enforcement <clears throat> to prepare for the storm and its, you know, impending aftermath. So the agency placed disaster response teams on standby at emergency posts in Austin and Baton Rouge. Um, Governor Greg Abbott declared a state of emergency for 30 counties initially on August 23rd. Um, while mandatory evacuations were issued for Brazoria, Calhoun, Jackson, um, Refugio, San Patricio, and Victoria counties, as well as a few parts of uh, Matagorda County. On August 26, Governor Abbott went ahead and added an additional 20 counties to that whole state of emergency declaration, which is a big deal. That's the, the state of emergency declarations, if, if you don't know, is what really puts things into action to get, you know, police, fire, EMS, you know, money for all this stuff. Um, just, it was a big deal. So 
The other interesting thing I found is the International Charter on Space and Major Disasters was activated by the uh, USGS, which is the United States Geological Survey, on behalf of the Texas Governor's Emergency Management Council. Um, and this provided for humanitarian satellite coverage. And so I read up just a little bit about that and really... Um, you know, you can't just park satellites, but what they do is, I mean, we've got these satellites going around the earth all the time. And basically whenever one would come over the Texas area, um, basically Texas, um, the Texas division of emergency management and, uh, and some other places basically had those at their disposal. And so they could use it, um, pretty much uninterrupted. So, that's kind of a big deal. I thought that was that was interesting. So next is the explosion at the BP refinery. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. All right, so the BP or British British Petroleum Refinery in Texas City um, in 2005 had this massive explosion. It killed 15 people and injured over 170. And it is considered one of the worst industrial accidents in U.S. history. So this explosion occurred on March 23rd, 2005. And I kind of remember some about this as well. <clears throat> uh, it happened when a vapor cloud of natural gas and petroleum ignited and violently exploded at the, let's see, isomerasian process, I guess. Anyway, they call it ISOM for short. <laughs> That's probably a good thing because I can't say the other word very well. So it happened at this unit at the BP Texas City Refinery in Texas City. And so it severely damaged the refinery. Um, this refinery was the second largest oil refinery in the state and the third largest in the United States. And it had an input capacity of 437,000 barrels a day. Um, as of January 1 of 2000. And so that's that's huge. And I do remember this because I remember uh, gas prices jumping up. We were like, oh my God, well, the second largest in the state and the third largest in the U.S. blew up. So uh, I thought it was interesting. BP's own accident investigation report stated that the direct cause of the accident was, and I quote, and I love the way they put this, heavier than air hydrocarbon vapors combusting after coming into contact with an ignition source, probably a running vehicle. The hydrocarbons originated from liquid overflow from the F-20 blowdown stack following the operation of the raffinate splitter overpressure protection system caused by overflowing and overheating of the tower contents, end quote. So what does that mean? Well, um, I found another one that kind of described it in, in layman's terms, I guess, because I didn't know what most of that meant. But uh, so a diesel pickup was left with its engine idling and it had been parked about 25 feet away from this, what they call a blowdown stack, apparently. So there's a, a vapor cloud of this stuff because I guess it overpressured and so some of the stuff gets out. 
So the vapor cloud reached the vehicle and hydrocarbon fumes were drawn into the engine's air intake, causing the engine to race. And if you guys have never seen what they call a runaway diesel, you need to look that up on YouTube. It's pretty fascinating and can be kind of scary because once a diesel gets to going, it's not stopping. So some nearby workers um, tried to shut down the engine without success. And then the expanding vapor cloud forced the workers who were trying to shut down the over speeding engine, the runaway truck to retreat. They ran away. So the cloud continues to spread across um, the entire plant area, the ISOM plant and across a, a pipe rack to the west and into a trailer area. Um, and it says it was unimpeded. So basically means it just kind of flowed out pretty freely. There was no emergency alarm sounded and at approximately 1.20, the vapor cloud was ignited by a backfire as observed by nearby witnesses um, that came from the overheating truck. So the runaway diesel was running away and it backfired. So this backfire triggered a massive explosion that was heard for miles. The blast pressure wave struck the contractor trailers um, completely destroyed or severely damaged most of them. So they had a bunch of contractor trailers right there close. It sent debris flying, instantly killing 15 people in and around the trailers and severely injuring 180 other people because there were a ton of people there. The pressure wave was so powerful that it blew out windows off site up to three quarters of a mile away. Think about that. I mean, three quarters of a mile away, the pressure wave blew out windows. That is just crazy. Um, it says about 200,000 square feet of the refinery was badly burned by the subsequent fire that followed these violent explosions. Uh, it damaged refinery equipment worth millions of dollars and the entire ISOM, ISOS unit, or ISOM, sorry, unit was severely damaged by the explosion. And then of course, you know, the resulting fire. Um, so badly, in fact, that uh, basically the entire the entire refinery would be out of commission for two years. And that's just, that is crazy. So in 2011, British Petroleum announced that it was selling the refinery as part of its ongoing divestment plan to help pay for ongoing compensation claims and remedial activities following, you know, this explosion. And then also the Deepwater Horizon disaster, which some of y'all may remember uh, in 2010. And the sale of the refinery was completed in 2013 to Marathon Petroleum Corporation. And it sold for two and a half billion dollars. So apparently they did a, a fair amount of repairs on the place and got it going again. So yeah, all, all of that because of a, a little bit too much pressure dumping out of a, an overflow basically, and then a runaway diesel engine truck. So uh, my understanding is from other reading that they've got some new regulations about vehicles being in certain areas and whether you can leave them running or not. Like it, it's a big deal, big things like that, change those regulations and rules for safety. So how about another man-made disaster? Cause why not? <clears throat> this goes back to, and, and this is also in Texas City. So this refinery we just talked about was in Texas City, but that happened in 2005. Let's take a step back to 1947. Um, this is called the Texas City Disaster, and it was an industrial accident that occurred on April 16, 1947, 
in the port of Texas City, Texas, located right in the Galveston Bay area. It was the deadliest industrial accident in U.S. history and one of history's largest non-nuclear explosion. That's what I found really fascinating about this. History's largest non-nuclear explosion. That is crazy. To give some perspective, there was a two-ton boat anchor. So two tons being about 4,000 pounds. A two-ton boat anchor from the SS Grand Camp, which is where the big explosion happened, um, was found 1.6 miles away after the explosion. And I read that there was a uh, about a 10 to 12 foot crater that was caused by the landing of this anchor. And so it blew it so far up and it came down so hard. It left a 10 to 12 foot diameter uh, crater. And I mean, God, you got to think about, I mean, launching a 4,000 pound, two ton boat anchor. Holy crap. So let's talk a little bit about the fire though, because it, it seems kind of incident, um, incident innocent uh, at first, and it really just kind of got out of hand. So uh, around eight o'clock, smoke was spotted in the cargo hold of the SS Grand Camp. And so the SS Grand Camp was a, a French ship here that was, um, you know, hauling some chemicals and stuff. And so, uh, so yeah, I mean, they were hauling chemicals. Um, some guys find it. They go and they try to put it out with water. And, uh, oh, let's see water and then um you know fire extinguishers well then the boat's captain i'm sorry I, my notes some of them disappeared shoot that's okay so i'll just kind of go from memory so um anyway the captain decides okay seal up the hold we've got ammonium nitrate in there so what we'll do is we'll just use the engines to produce steam and that'll snuff out the fire well the problem with ammonium nitrate is as it burns um it starts a uh, starts burning off and creating uh, a combustible gas, and I forget what the I forget what the chemical compound is. But um, anyway, so he starts doing that. Well, the problem is, you know how people say adding fuel to the fire. Well, water and ammonium nitrate. Um, water is actually an oxidizer for ammonium nitrate, which produces more of the explosive gases. And so, I mean, this guy, he was doing what he was trained to do, the captain was, but apparently at the time, they just, they really didn't realize that this was a, a really terrible idea. And so, steam pressure builds up, pressure builds up from the, uh, you know, ensuing oxidation of the ammonium, ammonium nitrate, and it ends up blowing the hatches off. And when it does, it releases a bunch of this gas, it hits something, and explodes. Yeah. So huge, huge, huge. Um, and yeah, it, it blew up it. It ended up blowing up several other ships that were in the nearby vicinity. It um, caused a bunch of fires, killed a ton of people, including uh, like 15 firemen. Um, I guess all but one of them died. The entire Texas City Volunteer Fire Department, <clears throat> from my understanding, went to uh, 
went and responded to it. And when it blew up, like it killed them all except for one guy. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this was a huge deal. Pretty much leveled all the docks down there. Um, the blast wave injured something like, gosh, I don't remember now. I think it said 800 or 1,000 other people. It leveled houses, like displaced and, and made homeless something crazy like 12,000 people. I mean, it was just an insane explosion. And remember, like I said, this is one of history's largest non-nuclear explosions. And then, of course, you know, after it exploded, you get all the, the fires and stuff like that. And, of course, the other ships that exploded down there. I mean, this was just a huge deal. And so investigators did confirm that uh, the ammonium nitrate was the material that exploded. You know, duh. Um, and I guess they continued, um, you know, they, they continued kind of searching for a while. So hang on, let me go back. Oop, I found my other notes. Sorry. They just ended up, uh, going to another, another spot. Sorry about that guys. So, um, so some more stuff on, I guess the dead, uh, of the dead, 405 were identified. I mean, okay. So this killed a lot more people than I remembered. Um, 405 were identified, 63 were never identified, and their remains were placed in a memorial cemetery in the north part of Texas City near Moses Lake. An additional 113 people were classified as missing. And uh, basically they said no identifiable parts were ever found. Um, part of the reason was people heard about this fire and whatever and, and went down there to check it out. And so that was a big mistake. Um, so of that 113 people, um, firefighters who were aboard the Grand Camp when, when it exploded, most of them, you know, I guess were never seen again, kind of vaporized them. Um, there's some speculation that there were hundreds more killed, um, but unaccounted for including visiting seamen who were on other boats, undocumented laborers and their family, which there were a lot of undocumented working the docks at the time, um, and a bunch of travelers. So more than 800 people were left orphaned or widowed. Um, there were also some survivors among people as close as 70 feet away from the dock. So that's crazy. So they had some survivors. I guess these people just got lucky. Um, they, they filled up local morgues pretty quickly. Um, quite a few bodies were laid out at high school gyms for the area for identification. Uh, it's just crazy. So more than 5,000 people were injured. Um, 1,784 of them were admitted to 21 area hospitals. Uh, 500 homes, that's where I got my number earlier, I guess. 500 homes are destroyed and hundreds damaged, leaving about 2,000 people homeless. The seaport in Texas City was absolutely destroyed. Uh, and, of course, the businesses that were around were flattened or burned. Uh, it did note that over 1,100 vehicles were damaged. 362 freight cars, so railroad cars, were obliterated. And the property damage in 1947 was estimated at $100 million, which would be the equivalent with inflation and everything today, well, I'm sorry, I guess 2021, at $965 million. Golly, that's just crazy. 
So it is generally considered to be the worst industrial accident in U.S. history, and witnesses compared the scene to the fairly recent images of the 1943 air raid on Bari, and then the much larger devastation after the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. So, I mean, think about that. These people are comparing it to atom bombs, nuclear bombs. Whew, that's just crazy. But an interesting bit of history. So, all right, let's kind of step out of that one. Let's go to uh, Hurricane Ike in 2008. So Hurricane Ike hits Texas in 2008, leaving, uh, and the, leaving about $29 billion in damages. It did cause 112 fatalities and left thousands without power and water. Um, it is said to have taken roughly the same path as the 1900 Galveston hurricane, which we'll get to later. There were a lot more details about Hurricane Ike uh, online, but really most everything I could find was mostly just kind of about the path it took, um, where, you know, where it hit along the way, like it talked about it hit Haiti, uh, and some of the other islands, and then really just a ton of meteorology, meteorological data. Boy, that's a tough word to say. <clears throat> so I didn't really want to get into that, you know, too much, but, you know, just kind of wanted to mention it and float it out there. Hurricane Ike, 2008. Um, the West Fertilizer Company in 2013, that was another one. In 2013, the West Fertilizer Company exploded and it damaged or destroyed more than 150 buildings, killed 15 people, and injured another 200. It caused roughly $100 million in damages. Um, investigators did confirm that it was ammonium nitrate, so basically the, the same stuff that was on the Texas City um, boat, the SS Grand Camp from 1947, it was the same stuff that exploded. And investigators on in May of 2016 um, part of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, and, and Explosives, stated that uh, they felt like the fire had been deliberately set. Um, so I remember when this happened. I remember there being videos of the explosion. Um, I think it was like a guy and his younger daughter. Um, kind of seemed to remember her being like 8 to 12 years old. And I can remember hearing her crying after the explosion and saying, Daddy, let's go, let's go, let's go. And everybody was like... Yeah, no kidding. Like, we want to get the heck out of there. Um, anyway, there's tons more stuff on that. Um, but again, there's still a lot of investigation and stuff going on. And probably the biggest thing was um, they've changed some regulations now. So agricultural areas like that, um, you know, that store these chemicals and things aren't required to have insurance. Um, the West Fertilizer Company... Uh, it said did have a million dollars in liability insurance, but it caused a hundred million dollars in damage. So, you know, what do you do? So that kind of sucked. That was, that was a big, big deal. So let's go ahead and take a little further step back in time to 1900 to the Galveston hurricane. So the Galveston hurricane was also known as the great Galveston hurricane and the Galveston flood. Um, it's still known regionally as the Great Storm of 1900 or the 1900 Storm. It is the deadliest natural disaster in the United States history as far as loss of life. Um, it was the strongest storm of the 1900 Atlantic hurricane season. It left between six and 12,000 fatalities um, total in the U.S., with the majority of them being right here in Texas. Um, 
The number most cited in official reports is 8,000, so I guess they just kind of took a somewhat middle road. Um, most of the deaths occurred, you know, in or near Galveston. If you look up pictures of this hurricane, I mean, you can just see there's before pictures and then after pictures and houses were just ripped off the foundation um, and just gone. Everything was leveled pretty much. So um, the biggest thing was it, there was a storm surge. So it just inundates the entire coastline. And, you know, of course, Galveston is an island city and it hits with an eight to 12 foot wall of water, which doesn't sound like much, but you got to think about, you know, the average person is like five foot nine. And so this would have been most of the part, probably twice as tall. So it is among the deadliest Atlantic hurricanes on record. Um, in addition to the number of people it killed, it also destroyed about 7,000 buildings, um, you know, business buildings, houses, all kinds of stuff, uh, about 7,000 buildings in Galveston. It did include, it says, 3,636 demolished homes. So every dwelling in the city, and this is the big thing, every dwelling, every house in the city suffered some degree of damage. If it wasn't from the hurricane, it was from the flood. And so it left approximately 10,000 people in the city homeless. Um, out of a total population of fewer than 38,000, that's a big deal when you have a quarter to a third of your population that are now homeless. So this disaster is said to have ended the golden era of Galveston because um, it was a pretty big population. I'm sorry, a destination place at the time. So, I mean, the hurricane really alarmed investors. People were starting to invest and build it up. And uh, a lot of investors went, whoop, nope, that's, that doesn't seem like a good idea. We're just going to go to Houston instead. So uh, because of the storm, there were three engineers that designed and oversaw plans to raise the Gulf of Mexico shoreline of Galveston Island by 17 feet. And they did. It's called the seawall. You can go down and walk on it today, but yeah, 17 feet, and they did it over a 10-mile stretch, and this has apparently helped um, Galveston a lot. So we just hit the 30-minute uh, mark, but I've got a couple more things that I want to talk about. Um, one is the Lubbock tornado of 1970. So portions of Lubbock, Texas were struck by this powerful multi-vortex tornado, and so what that means is it's kind of considered one tornado incident, but there were multiple tornadoes inside of it. So this happened on May 11th, 1970, had 26 fatalities, which is pretty big with a, a tornado system, did $135 million in damages. It was, at the time, the costliest tornado in U.S. history because it damaged nearly 9,000 homes and widespread damage to businesses, high-rise buildings, public infrastructure, the whole bit. Um, the tornado's damage, and this is what I thought was cool about this, was actually surveyed by meteorology Ted Fujita. So, and if you've heard of the F scale or the EF scale for tornadoes and damage, that's where it came from. That's the Fujita scale. Um, it was described as the most detailed mapping ever done up to that time of the path of a single tornado. So this meteorologist, Fujita, goes out and really surveys the path and the damage and everything else. Originally, the most severe damage was assigned an F6 rating, 
um, on the Fujita scale, making it one of only two tornadoes to ever receive that rating. Later, they did downgrade it to an F5 <clears throat> after uh, Fujita really declared that an F6 damage was just inconceivable. So really, I mean, you have from an F0 to an F5, and then they, they have now what they call an EF, so it's enhanced Fujita, and they kind of break it out a little more. Um, but yeah, basically an F6, based on his structure of the Fujita scale at the time, was just in, inconceivable, so they knocked it down to a big F5. So the uh, extremity, extremity of the damage and the force required to displace heavy objects... Um, was observed indicating that winds produced by the vortices within the tornado may have reached as high as get this 290 miles an hour almost 300 mile an hour winds uh, it was so strong that it ripped brick facade off of entire rows of buildings um, it is considered a long track tornado um, in that it covered eight and a half miles over a half hour period uh, it was measured at a mile and a half wide when it first touched down and then, I guess, got smaller as it went um, and was about a quarter mile wide when it finally lifted. Uh, one other thing to note, it said about 119 aircraft were damaged at the Lubbock Airport where the Lubbock office of the U.S. Weather Bureau was located. And as of 2023, this remains the westernmost F5 or EF5 tornado recorded in the United States. So now let's jump on to uh, another tornado, the Wichita Falls tornado of 1979. So neither my family nor my wife's family lived here in Wichita Falls at the time. Uh, my wife was actually born a year later to the day. So she was born April 10th, 1980, which, you know, when she got here to Wichita Falls, she got poked fun at a little bit because uh, April 10th, 1979 is called Terrible Tuesday. And so every year it would come up in school, people would talk about it and, uh, you know, it's my wife's birthday. So that kind of sucks, I guess. So it was a destructive and deadly tornado outbreak. And and so that's the important thing. It was a tornado outbreak. It really just wasn't a single tornado. But it impacted the Red River Valley. Um, you know, it, there were just kind of tornadoes everywhere. Um, several strong to violent tornadoes touched down uh, throughout the region all on the same day. Uh, one F4 tornado impacted Vernon, Texas, which is about 52 miles away. Um, the most notable tornado, though, was an F4 that touched down and destroyed most of the southern part of Wichita Falls. And you can you can still drive around and see, um, even at the mall, um, the brick is a different color on, I don't remember if it's J.C. Penney's or Dillard's, but anyway, you can look at it and you can see that the brick is just a little different color up above. And that's from the tornado. They had to come in and rebuild it. And so they rebuilt it, obviously, with bricks, trying to match it, and they've just kind of weathered a little differently. <clears throat> like I said, it is commonly referred to as Terrible Tuesday. Um, there were tons of other tornadoes that re were reported all across the Southern Plains, as well as the Mississippi River Valley. Um, so this whole storm system was over uh, April 10th, 11th, and 12th. So overall, the entire storm system killed 58 people and injured almost 2,000 others. Um, you know, it even a few days after this, it produced the 1979 Easter flood. 
um, which was the worst disaster to befall Jackson, Mississippi in over a century, uh, century, um, causing over $500 million in 1979 dollars. And it forced the evacuation of 15,000 people. Um, and then that killed one, which is unfortunate. Now I will say with all this, my wife was really terrified of thunderstorms when we first got married. And I don't mean like, you know, go run and hide kind of terrified, but you know, her anxiety would really kick in. Like she would really worry to death about it. And I remember I got my ham radio license in 2006. Um, you know, as part of some of the stuff I was doing with the Boy Scouts at the time. And they offered up a, a, a weather spotting class, you know, storm spotters right here at Midwestern State University. And so um, Jesse and I both went, <clears throat> and that really helped a lot. Um, she enjoys weather now. I mean, we both like weather, um, you know, since she is a science teacher and I, I was a science teacher for a while, like just understanding things and, and how things work. I mean, storms, storms are, I mean, they're, they're pretty intense. They can be, but if you just kind of understand what to look for, where to watch, like it just, it really helps you out. We did also watch a lot of the storm chaser shows that were on for a while uh, and really, I mean, here's the big thing. If y'all are moving to Texas and tornadoes terrify you, I remember having a, f a friend of mine I was talking to, you know, she was from California and she's like, oh my gosh, you know, like, how do you deal with the tornadoes? This is just crazy. Um, you know, I mean, you just, you can't expect them. And I'm like, well, I mean, normally, I mean, we, we've got some pretty decent warning stuff in place now. Like they know what to look for. And so they can give us kind of a heads up. And she goes, yeah, but it's just such a surprise. And I'm like, like earthquakes in California? And she's like, okay, fair point. She said, eh, you know, earthquakes aren't bad. And I'm like, earthquakes would terrify me because where do you go? Where do you hide? Um, that's just something I've never really experienced. Not a big one anyway. So, you know, biggest thing is, I mean, yeah, you know, you can get damage if you're outside of the path of a tornado, but I mean, really for your house to be leveled, which is what most people think about, just your house scraped off the slab and just gone. I mean, it has to be a huge tornado and really a direct hit. And the likelihood of that happening is pretty small. And then the other part too is, I mean, just the early warning systems have gotten so much better, so much better. So yeah, if you're worried about tornadoes in Texas, you know, I would, I wouldn't say don't worry about them. But what I would say is get educated. So the last one I'm going to talk about right quick is the Texas drought. Um, again, this happened to us, you know, in fairly recent memory. It was a 2011 to 2015 is kind of the official date. So we talk about this drought um, like we were the only ones affected. Um, it actually hit the entire southern United States, um, including... Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, and Oklahoma. Um, so it also hit some other states, including Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona, as well as huge parts of Mexico. So it was just this basically a three-year pattern of suck where we weren't getting any rain. Caused over $8 billion in damages, um, mostly from crops and things like that. Um, 2011 was actually the driest year in Texas with an average across the state being 14.8 inches for the year. 
which is crazy. I think for the year, we're normally somewhere in the 40 or 50. I forgot to look that up. But anyway, drought restrictions were here. Um, you know, you couldn't water your yard at some point. Um, we even had the whole, you know, uh, if you use the restroom, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. Um, you know, basically, if you went in to pee, you know, just leave it. It's going to stink, but, you know, whatever. Leave it, and you can pee in there three or four times before you flush the toilet. And then, of course, if you pooped, you know, go ahead and flush that down. But, yeah, this this was a huge deal. Water restrictions, everything. I mean, our lakes got really low. Um, uh, there's a guy here in town named Daniel Nix that had kind of come up with a plan for a water reuse project. So, basically, all of our... All of our water that was funneled into the sanitation system would get cleaned up, pumped out to the local lake, and then, you know, pumped back into our water system and then cleaned up some more. And so we had a lot of fun at that, you know. Um, I've got, I've even got a shirt that says, you know, Wichita Falls, we put the number two in H2O. <laughs> there were all kinds of jokes about it, but really, I mean, the water reuse project kind of saved the day. It was a big deal, and I know uh, Daniel, who's a friend of mine, his wife teaches with my wife, um, but he's traveled all over the world um, to go speak at conferences about water reuse projects. And so really the reason they hadn't caught on so far was kind of the ick factor. You know, everybody goes, well, you're drinking poop water, which I guess is kind of true, but because of that ick factor, they put in so many regulations and things on how to clean up the water that we really do have some of the best water in the state. Like it is just super clean. So there you go. If you ever want to drink poop water, come on up here to Wichita Falls. <laughs> so I'd like to be known for other things, you know, like the falls that we can turn on and off. So anyway, let's kind of wrap this thing up here. Um, so Texas has this rich history of natural and man-made disasters, rich history. Uh, I don't know is really the right term. But, I mean, they're pretty significant. They're huge, significant events in, in history. The disasters caused billions of dollars in damages, left millions of Texas without or Texans without homes and injuries. Um, you know, I hope that we never see another disaster like that in Texas, natural or man-made. Um, I think we've learned a lot from the events of our past, and uh, we're doing a lot to prevent future disasters. So we are resilient. And uh, we really rebound well as a state and a culture. And so things like this happen, and uh, it's cool to see how everybody comes together. So there you go. So what do you think? Are you worried about disasters here in Texas if you're moving here? I, I really hope not. Um, that's not why I did the podcast. This is just history. You know, Texas is a great state, and, you know, disasters can happen anywhere. Um, however, I would like to throw out that there is one place you won't run into a disaster at least on your mortgage rates anyway. <laughs> and that's with me and uh, American Mortgage. You know, keep in mind, if you know someone moving to or in Texas, send them my way. They don't want a disaster when it comes to the closing table. And uh, I don't want them to have to go through that either. So send them my way. Send them to themichaelmitchell.com. Remember, we sell dreams, not mortgages. I love helping people get into homes. I really, really do. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast. Appreciate everybody sitting on the back porch with me. As always, remember the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great week. <laughs>